the space that holds the grief that makes it safe to experience because we can always ground ourselves through the physical clothing of the person. I like to recognize their bodies in the clothes too. It's more collaborative in that way. You're listening to Seamside, and I'm your host, Zach Foster. And here on this show, we explore the inner work of textiles. Today, we sit down with improv quilter, Sherry Linwood. Hey, Seamsiders, you may have heard, but the Nook is turning two years old real soon. And so to celebrate, I'm giving away two annual memberships good for the entire year of 2024 to two people listening to the sound of my voice right now. I won't be sharing this giveaway anywhere else but here on Seamside, so seems to me your chances are pretty good you could win. To enter the giveaway, there's a link in the show notes below. Drop over there to get your name in the hat, and you have until December 31st, 2023. I'll draw the winners on January 1st, 2024, and the winners will get 12 months of quilty goodness. That's 12 different workshops hosted by visiting artists, 24 sewing circles hosted by me, along with countless other sewing circles hosted by other good folks on the Nook. Every day of the year, there's something happening over on the Nook. There's so much to love. I hope to see you there. If Sherry Lynn Wood and I were to map out our lives onto a Venn diagram, there'd be a lot of overlap. We both spent parts of our childhood in North Carolina. We both host online communities for quilters. Y'all know mine's the Quilty Nook. Hers is called Brave Patch. We both honor elements of quilting as a spiritual practice, and in doing so, we both work a lot with grief and bereavement. We may call the quilts different things. For example, I make memory quilts and Sherry makes passage quilts, but they both point to the stories and energy that our clothes contain even after we pass. In this conversation, Sherry and I take a deep dive on what it means to work with clothing as a channel for processing life and loss. We discuss the emotional aspects of working with clothing, some practical ideas for collaborating with others on a memory quilt, and how to engage in self-care for quilters doing grief work. I hope you enjoy How to Make Memories with improv quilter Sherry Lynn Wood. Sherry, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's wonderful to be here, Zach. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Can you paint the picture for us a little bit so the listener knows where you're at right now? Okay. Well, I am sitting in my sewing room in my home, and I have a sewing room and a studio. So my sewing room is on the second floor, and that's where I teach my workshops online. And then I have an attic studio right above it that I just that's just the messy place where I make the quilts. And so I'm sitting here. The light is wonderful in this space. It's a warm day here in Cincinnati and the sun is coming in. It's bright and calm. I love the image of Sherry's messy attic where she goes to make all her quilts. (laughs) Uh, It reminds me of the idea that the, the Romans used to believe that, that the genius was a spirit, an actual spirit disembodied from our own. Right. And so when I look at the the piles of fabric scraps on the floor of the area where I work, I'm like, that's where the genius lives. So maybe your genius lives up in your attic. That's true. And the other nice thing about this attic, I've had a lot of studio moves in the last couple of years. I've moved studios twice. I've had some beautiful studios and 
for different reasons, they just didn't work out. Like one, the rent went up really high and the other one, it just was, it was a beautiful space, but it was leaking in the rain. It was freezing cold in the winter and hot, too, too hot in the summer. And it just wasn't too functional. And so I moved back finally to the attic space. And the funny story about this attic space is that I bought this house from a family estate because the woman who lived here before me died and she died of cancer and she lived in this house, I think for 18 years and she was an artist and she was a painter and the attic was her studio. And so it was always set up as a studio space. And, and yet I resisted that history and I love the house so much. Like I haven't changed the colors of the house. I mean, she just had, an aesthetic that I just immediately connected with. And so when I finally moved up there, I was like, well, I think her ghost was like <laughs> nixing the other places. She wanted some creativity happening up in the, the thing. So I feel like I'm honoring the spirit of her in having my studio up there. And it, even though it's really small, I've really enjoyed uh, that space a lot. And it, it is changing the way I work. I have a tabletop there, so nothing's going to be bigger than a tabletop. And I don't have a wall to work on, so it's all on a flat surface. And yeah, it's just very intimate. It's very messy. But I also have to clean up between projects and things like that. So it's cozy. I like it. Have you ever thought about collaborating with this woman that used to live and work out of the studio? Have you ever invited her, at least as like a mental experiment, like what that quilt might look like? Not like real specifically, like what kind of quilt would she have me make or anything? But this is a great neighborhood and, and her sister still lives in this neighborhood. And I met these other neighbors that their backyard used to back up to my backyard when this woman, her name was Julie Mitchell, lived here. And they have like an antique mall or something that they run. And so they have a lot of her paintings. And so I actually got, I bought one of her paintings, her watercolors of Cincinnati, and I have that hanging in my home. I am really happy to have her painting. And I do feel her, her creative spirit as a blessing in the house and a blessing of the house and a blessing of that space. And that's why, you know, it's funny that it took me so long to, just decide. I mean, because I, I used to think well, it's just too small, right? But it just feels right. So in that way, I guess I am collaborating with her and just making it the home space. Yeah. You know, I'm really curious to see what will happen when I end up in a new studio at some point in the nearest future, because right now I'm working out of the Eden portion of our Eden kitchen in a 900 square foot apartment, right? Ooh. <laughs> and so the, the eat-in portion is maybe eight feet by 10 feet, but most of that footprint is taken up with the one table that I have in there, all the crates where I keep the fabric and the sewing machine when it's out. So like really, I can just stand in the middle of the studio and just pivot and do whatever I need to do. Like it's all within arm's reach, which, you know, on good days feels like an asset, on other days, I'm like, I can't make anything in this space. Like, this is impossible. No one, these are not like proper working conditions, but it's what I got. You're making some mighty work in that small little space. And that's great. But, you know, space does affect how you create. It definitely does. I mean, I've lived here a couple of years, like during the pandemic. 
here in this house before I actually tried moving out and all the work was pretty small. I work smaller if the space is smaller. And like I said, like now, but I actually like that limit at this point right now where I'm deciding I'm not going to work anything bigger than my six foot by, I think it's six foot by six feet. That's going to be the size of, you know, I won't make anything bigger than that. And I like that. I like that size and it's good enough for a throw quilt. It's good enough for something on the wall. And, and I'm, I'm happy to have those limits. But it definitely affects how you work your space. And I love that about, well, when you're working improvisationally, I love that when your environment comes in to play a role in your creativity, of course. Yeah, it's just another one of the variables that goes into the magic formula, whatever that is. It also makes me think of, uh, is it koi fish that grow to the size of the pond, right? Like you can put a, a baby koi in a small pond and it stays fairly small. You can put a baby koi in a large pond and it'll grow to scale with the size of the pond. And so there's something in there. There's something in that metaphor for us as artists and the pieces we make and the amount of fabric maybe we hold on to. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting to think about. That reminds me of something in just an odd, tangential way, talking about spaces and how we grow into them. We had, in Brave Patch, we had this illustrator, Nina Yagual, and her on Instagram, she's at Beautiful Hood Crumb, and she's been doing some illustrations for Brave Patch for a community space. And so we had her talk about her creative practice. And this year, we've been talking about practice makes practice, and we've had different things each quarter. And this last quarter, we've really been focusing on meaning and message. And so we wanted her to talk and share her work, even though it's not quilt related. Through the course of the conversation, we talked about a lot of different things. Um, But one of the things she brought up was we were talking about grief and trauma and how grief is, and she used this illustration, how the grief never gets smaller it stays the same size. And in order not to be overwhelmed, it's not about shrinking the grief or moving past the grief, but it's about, if you imagine that grief in a container, which is you, right? It's inside you. It's about expanding the container. So the grief stays the same, but it takes up less space as the container gets larger. And how important it is to cultivate joy and creativity is a great path to that as part of that work that you do around trauma. It's not about shrinking it or losing it or making it go away. It's about expanding the space around it so there's other things in your life because that grief stays there. And it may transform in different ways. But it's, it's still there. And, and I was thinking about that, too, with my mom. It's going to be 20 years since my mom died. And Day of the Dead and All Souls Day is just this time of year. You think about the people who have died. And, and I'm just about the age. Like, I'm going to turn 60 this year. And she died when she was 60. So was, and I was 40 when she died. So all of that. And, and that grief is still it's still strong. It still comes. 
at times. And and there's more because friends start to die. And that's going to be more of a part of my life now. And so it's really, it was really interesting to hear her talk about that. I don't know. It just made me think about the coys, made me think about that because it's like, it's like, how do we inhabit space and what kinds of things inhabit us and how do we expand our space? How do we grow? So I was also thinking about that just in the last couple of days. I was thinking about the work I do with bereavement work with passage quilting and how that works. And and I was remembering a certain person that I worked with. And I've done a lot of work with people that have had really tragic losses, too. I've done a lot of work with people that have parents who've died and just from aging and things like that. And that's that's hard enough. But when you have a child who kills himself or a, a, a husband or father, who, you know, tragic losses untimely. There's a lot of folks I get that have those tragic losses. And it seems like making quilts is such an embodied experience for processing grief, right? And in, in, in a way that's not about talking, because your body's engaged. And the materials bring back memories and thoughts. Anyways, this woman, Marsha, that I worked with, she her 18-month-old son died. He had a seizure and died in her arms. And she kept all the materials from his childhood. I mean, he was only 18 months old, but his infant clothes and beddings and even the clothes she was wearing when he died in her arms and things like that. And she didn't come to me until like 15 years later to work on a quilt because that grief was just so powerful. And in that meantime, she had two other children and she brought clothes to put in that quilt. She brought her son, her son who died, Michael, she brought his clothes, his baby clothes, her clothes that she was wearing, clothes from her husband, clothes from her children that were alive. And they were all in the quilt because this quilt is about relationships. And so she's making relationships. And we worked one-on-one. So she would come every couple of weeks and we'd work for like three or four hours. And then she would leave and she'd come back. And then eventually we got to the point where she took a bunch of it home and worked on it herself. Then she came back with the quilt top and it was right after Mother's Day. And she'd finished it. And, and I think we were going to bat it up and teach her how to do the quilting so she could do that on her own. And she told me, and this always stuck with me, she told me that this was the first Mother's Day that she actually felt joyful. Even though she had these other two children in her life, and it was that making of that quilt that shifted that for her. And the other thing I thought about that is, and I noticed this with other people I worked with too, especially around tragic loss, is that the thing about that is that when a child dies or or somebody dies tragically, a lot of the story gets caught up in the death, right? Instead of the life of the person. So that's one of the things she brought out too, is like now seeing this quote, I remember his personality I'm feeling Michael again, and I see Michael. So that that having that quilt, in a way, brought back the joy of his life and his personality. So that grief is still there, but the container just expanded tremendously 
through her process of making that quilt and being able to see Michael again as the person he was and not have it be as tied up with the, the loss, right? And that that made me think about how the process of doing bereavement work with people and quilting just gave me another level of thinking about there's that grief and how does that container expand? What kinds of things expand it and how that happens? So that was my big learning around this just recently about that. It's funny how you can do things and you, you, you can work on stuff, but you always get new pieces of information that come to you at different times in your creative life that give you new insights. And if you're at all like me, I'll learn something and then relearn it and then relearn it. And each time I'm like, did you know X, Y, Z, whatever? And they're like, yeah, Zach, <laughs> we did. But there is, there's a new level, a new nuance, a layer there that uh, is yet to discover. Bereavement work is one of the things that you and I have in common. It's where our Venn diagrams overlap. And I'm curious to know, because I was recently working with my aunt side by side on a memory quilt for my uncle Jim who passed away. I know listeners have probably listened to that particular episode where I talked a lot about that quilt. And it was the first time I'd ever worked with another person side by side on a memory quilt. The other memory quilts I've done have been done at a distance, right? Maybe someone will drop off the clothes or send me the clothes and they're involved in many of the decisions as far as design and how the quilt's going to turn out. But ultimately, it's me work doing the work behind the scenes and they get the finished quilt. It was such a different experience working alongside someone. It felt much more, I'm not just giving them a product, right? I'm giving Mm -hmm. them space and time and open ear and an open heart and a chance to tell their stories and all of that. I'm wondering what, when you're sitting side by side with somebody and you're working on a quilt, what what do those sessions tend to look like? Yeah, I think for me, it was really important to understand my role in that exchange, right? And pretty early on, I realized I'm not a therapist, right? So I'm not doing therapy with them. And so the thing that I really always brought into those sessions, and and I've done sessions with one-on-one, but I've done whole workshops with people working on different bereavement projects at the same time, right, but in the same space. And But I've also worked with groups of people working together on the same quilt that have had shared loss, right, like two daughters whose mother died or a group of friends whose friend died. But I think the thing that I really understand about it is that I'm a, I'm a facilitator. I'm there to listen, and I am there to hold space. And so whatever comes up, I'm there to support them. And, and it's different with different people. People have different reactions. It's one thing when you're working with maybe somebody you're close with, because I've worked with friends too, as opposed to people you don't really know that well, right? And, and it is about listening and being there for them. And then, and what's been always helpful to me, especially when people have gotten overwhelmed, is just to let them know that it's okay, that whatever feelings they're having, it's good to have those feelings and that, that we can stay grounded by making the quilt. 
And so my role is to be like, I don't know if you experience this when you if, when you cut up the clothes with your aunt, right? It's a very powerful moment when that happens because that's a big transition where you acknowledge that this person's not going to wear these clothes anymore. Something is changing. It's a big transformative motion. And so there's a lot of intense emotion around there. And I've even had people disassociate and just start telling me body stories or completely. And, I, and at first, the first time that happened, I was like, I don't know what's going on. Then I realized, oh, it's disassociation. So I just held space for that and allowed it to happen. And then just got the person grounded back into the work that we were doing together. And then sometimes people actually cry or they share the stories. And uh, so it's a pow- those powerful moments are important to hold space for. And it's so important for people to feel emotion. So I always think that's a good thing when people can have space for that. And but then the great thing is, is that the quilt, the making of the quilt itself becomes, we're talking about containers and space again, the space that holds the grief that makes it safe to experience. Because we can always ground ourselves in a physical act through our bodies. And we're grounding ourselves through the physical clothing of the person too. And the I like to work with the architecture of the clothing. You know, it's great to recognize their bodies in the clothes, too. It's more collaborative and connecting in that way. So I think I think just understanding, like people would often ask me, well, how do you do that? When it can be overwhelming, but I think just understanding my role as a facilitator of a listener, as a person that can help ground them in the process of making And that seems to be enough to really make it a space that people can have a meaningful, restorative experience. Sherry, since you mentioned that the first cut is often the hardest one, right? Because you're having to face and acknowledge a certain reality. Do you have any practical tips for things you think about? When you're getting started with somebody in a memory quilt, do you start with a particular garment or is there something that you tell them or is there a way that you frame it or are there things leading up to it? Like I'm thinking of when I was working with my aunt and we had all of my uncle's clothes out on the floor and we were kind of rifling through. There were some pieces that were that didn't carry a lot of emotional energy for her. They were very easy to work with and other pieces were very charged with energy. And so we start, I had her start with a little canvas bag that was never my uncle's, but it had pictures of their five grandkids printed on them, right? So it was something that brought her a lot of joy in the moment. And so I had her deconstruct that bag while I was working on some of the harder stuff. And then we transitioned that way so that she would join me in working on that harder stuff. Do you do you have kind of practical points for like how you get started with somebody and making those first cuts? Yeah, One of the first things I always tell people, because a lot of times people come to me and maybe sometimes right after a loss happens, they're not ready to do the quilt. They're just not ready. It's too soon. I don't know how soon it was for your your aunt. Two weeks. That's pretty soon. That's really soon. Yeah. So a lot of people can't even make decisions about which clothes, or maybe they can make decisions about which clothes they might want to be in the quilt, but they definitely aren't in the place to cut it up. 
And I also get a lot of people say, oh, I wish I'd known about this. But, you know, the clothing just got thrown out first thing. Like the clothing is so powerful. It either people sometimes have a response, like just get it all out of here as soon as possible. Or they they keep it forever. Like I worked with one person who kept his wife's clothing around for two years in the closet as it was before he could even start to deal with it, right? So giving people practical tips that like, well, go through and and pick the items that are the most meaningful to you that represent their style or carry strong memories because you know which pieces are more powerful like that. Pull those aside. Maybe some other ones where you just feel like they're good colors or whatever. And maybe pick 10 pieces or 20 pieces. But uh, I mean, my mom had so much clothing, it was crazy. <laughs> some people have more clothing than others. And so with our family, we, we each, I got together with my sisters and brothers and their kids and my dad, and each of them picked the clothes that they wanted in their quilt, right? And it was a different set because they had different connections to her. And, but there was so much clothes. So I tell them, pick that important stuff. And if you can't do it on your own, so if you have a friend or a family member, or if I'm in that location, I'll do it with them, but they can always invite people to do it with them. And then they can put it in a box and set it aside and maybe take a little while before they're ready to work on it. They don't have to do it right away so they can have that clothing. And so I've had, I I mean, it varies. I've had some people that want to do the work right away, but I, I would say... In general, a lot of people, it takes about two years. That's what I find, too, which is so interesting. That two years seems to be, you know, grief experts say that there's not like a trajectory that we all follow. Everybody's grief process is unique to them. But there's still something around two years. I mean, that's when I tend to get the emails or the phone calls. Right. And so sometimes I get them right away, but they're not ready to do it for two years. Or like Marsha, she came to me 15 years later. I've had people come eight years later, but they kept the clothing, so they had something to to do. So, yeah, I think grief is different than bereavement. The grief is so intense, it's not a time to, might not be the time. There's other things that have to to happen. I mean, the the grief is the most intense. And I I think that it starts to, whatever that process is, the bereavement process is, you're still working through that grief, but it's a little further down the line. So I think there is a difference between being in grief and being in bereavement. And so I, I think that makes sense for some people. But then some others, yeah, want to go right into it. So letting people know that they have permission. If they want to do something like this, they can go ahead and say, and then that gives them the freedom to give away the rest of the materials, the rest of the clothes, and just be like, I can let go of this and get that process going. Because there's so much, I think, that has to be done when somebody first dies that there's just all the emotion. There's just so much. It's just maybe not the time to make a quilt for some people. So anyways, I I think that's the one tip. And then another tip is that I do have people identify the most significant 
part of the clothing. You know, I ask them for those pieces, even if I'm doing it separately from them. Like if they're sending me the materials, I ask them about that. I ask them to tell stories about those clothing and why it's important. And I do often get people say, you know, I don't want to have this dress in it, though. This dress is just too special to have it cut up. And it's always the person's choice. But I also share stories of people that when my grandmother died, my aunt was like, well, I definitely want a, a quilt from her clothes, but I don't want to put this particular dress in it because it just means too much and I don't want it cut up. And so she kept that dress. And I made her this quilt. and She loves the quilt. And of course, as soon as she got the quilt, she's like, oh, I wish I had that dress in it. Because now this quilt lives out with me and I see it every day. And But the dress is packed away in a closet somewhere and I never see it. And so I, I let people know about that. And then I also talk about it being a collaboration with the person. So when they're working with somebody's clothing, they're, they're collaborating with that person. So it's a definite connection to that person. And it's also about relationships. So I invite them to also include some of their own clothes or other family members' clothes if they want. And I think it might have been different for your aunt if it hadn't just been two weeks, right? But I think that strategy that you did was a good one. I mean, I've not, I've not, I don't think I've really had to do that with somebody, but I, I think that's a, that's a good way to do it, especially if it's so, so fresh. And it, and it was tough. Like we made the first pass through the clothes pretty quick. And I'm like, oh, my aunt's in a good place. This is great. But then we get to the harder stuff. And I said, okay, so now we know where our edge is at the moment. And I tell her, I'm trusting you to let me know when we get to that edge. And so we just acknowledge it and we just back up a little bit and sit with it and then we carry on down when we're feeling a little bit stronger. Yeah. And, you know, it depends on the person, but sometimes I do let them know. I think most cases I do let people know, like, that we're we're doing this in an intentional, a very intentional practice. I, I mean, my theory is that way back when people just lived their frontier lives making quilts out of everyday materials because that's what they had and they needed something to keep warm with. With they used clothing, they used things from their lives, and so maybe this was a more built in way that we marked passages in our lives without having to be so intentional. Quilt makers just understood maybe they didn't really spell it out, but they had the feeling perhaps. I mean, who knows? I'm, I'm just supposing, but it was a practice that's gotten lost when people just buy new fabric to make quilts out of, they've lost that practice of, oh, well, I've worn this shirt that was my favorite shirt that represent this time when I lived here or was doing this thing or was this person. So I'm a new person now. And, and so I'm working with this now. I'm cutting this up. It's worn out, but I'm cutting it out and putting it in a quilt. And I remember those times when I was that person. And, you know, you're just doing it naturally. You're not maybe being so intentional about it, but we lost that practice as a daily practice and probably lots of other practices, right? And some of that's consumer culture, like buying new things. So when we enter it into doing bereavement or any kind of passage, it doesn't have to be passage from death, 
in, into death. It could be other passages. I bring intention to it and let them know they're doing an intentional practice. So and, and so I'll say we're going to cut up the clothing and this is a big this is a big step. We're recognizing our relationship is changing with this person. We still have a relationship with them. That doesn't go away, but the nature of the relationship is changing just as the, the relationship to this clothing that's not going to be worn anymore is going to be made into something new. We're making a new relationship through this process. So bringing that intention, I think, is also helpful because that, that opens up the space for them to have that emotion and thought about that transition. It takes something that could be just an exercise in manual craft and adds an entire layer of spirituality, relationships, grief. Right, right. What, what other kind of passage quilts have you worked on with people or have heard about, maybe folks in your class? Because like you mentioned, there are many kinds of passages that we may go through in life. Like I'm thinking, I didn't actually make this quilt, but when I left teaching high school for 18 years, a couple years back, I should have made like a Mr. Foster quilt out of all my old teacher clothes. I'd never plan on wearing again. I got rid of them. I donated them to charity, but I, I could have made that quilt and that would have been a really sweet keepsake to have. What are some other passage quilts that you're, you've heard about? Yeah, well, actually, I worked with some woman who was, I think she was a lawyer and she gave up lawyering. And I can't remember what her new profession was, but she was making a whole quilt out of all her old lawyer outfits. So that is that is definitely a big passage. And you play that role as a teacher and, and that's a big part of your life and you're letting that go and transitioning into something new. So that's a, a real good one. Of course, there's empty nest when children grow up and people have their clothes. So that's a, that's a thing I see. And it's wonderful for the person to make them. And often they make them for their children that's going off to college or something. And then they can give the quilt to their child. Well, one of the fun things I've done is a menopause party. And I will have to give that credit to my friend Patty, who came to me, and I was very young. It was way away from menopause. And we did it as, an, as a round robin, as an improv round robin. And it was one of the most wonderful experiences for me as a facilitator. She invited, I don't know, maybe 20 people. And we had it in my, I had a big studio. This was in Durham. And they all came to the studio and they all brought meaningful materials from their lives. And most of them were around her age. So they were in that same bracket of menopause. She wanted to have a celebration and mark that passage into menopause. And so we did an improv round robin, but we were using meaningful materials, not, not just our, our quilt stash. And a lot of them weren't necessarily quilters. I mean, they had some sewing experience. They had to bring their sewing machines. And, and they each used a little bit of their clothing and everybody's quilt, and they passed it around. But you add a little bit of your own to each one, if that makes sense. So, so at the end, everyone had a quilt that had their own materials in it, but also a little bit of everybody else's material in it. And they all sang at the end. I mean, it was just a really wonderful event. And most of them, not all of them knew each other. They all knew Patty, of course, but she had friends from different parts of her life. So it was also bringing her community together. So that was a fun one. 
there's also, you know, celebrating marriage. I've done quilts where they ask their different families to bring to, this is a hard one <laughs> because at least with a person, if you're working with one person, mostly one person's clothing, there's already a, a style. So they, this doing a wedding quilt like this, where you bring materials from lots of different family members from two, two different families into a single quilt and a lot of different materials, a little different, but it is still a nice way to mark the combining of family. That makes me think, Sherry, if I can just jump in for a second, that yeah. makes me think of, I made a similar quilt that was, it, it was, it was billed as a birthday quilt, but really it was a combining of families because they've gotten married recently before this birthday. And so Claire was her name. She went behind her partner's back and arranged for both of their families to send me fabric. And I hear you, it was all over the place. <laughs> but I think as a creative person, as an artist side, so, you know, we're going to set aside a moment like the spiritual work of, of grief work, right? But just as a creative person, it would be really tacky for me to, when someone reaches out for a commission, to say, oh, maybe I'll work on this quilt with you, but let me see the clothing first, right? Like, you can't oh. say that. You can't say that. No. So <laughs> as a creative, it has given me so many opportunities to really stretch myself because you just yeah. never know what you're going to get, right? And that's invaluable. That's right. It's exciting, right? You have to problem solve and you have to make it work somehow. You have to find those relationships and connections between the clothing. So, it, yeah, it's very very good. One of the things I'm moving into that's new with this, and and that's something I'm excited about this spring with my new online workshops, my new series is on found color. And it's about sourcing sustainable materials and sourcing color. Where do we find color and finding our true colors, joy and agency in the face of systems in the need of repair? So we're going to be doing things with functional color things like how to see after image colors, how to work with monotones, which will put more emphasis on value. So some formal aspects of color. And we're going to be working with materials that we, we source secondhand or from our existing stash, of course. And so we're going to be working also with things like material different types of materials like you would if you worked with somebody's clothing and expanding texture. And I saw that quilt that you made from your grandmother's robe, velour robe, and that's such a beautiful thing to have that texture, right? Create something that's almost like an aura to have those shifts. And the depth of color of some materials is just astounding, like wools and corduroys, and satin velours. So there's going to be a lot of aspects of it, but one of the one of the really special classes that I'm excited about is the it's called Trailblazers, and it's a little bit. Usually my classes are maybe six hours or eight hours and split into two days, but this is going to be a twelve hour class. So it is going to be three days of four hours, and you know I'm calling it a tribute to the Bridges Quilt and R.B. Williams. And how she would take a pair of pants and just, you know, make them the central focus. And then there'd be all kinds of great stuff going on with the, with the way she put the patterns together and worked with the whole piece of the pants. 
the different sides of the pants and what she'd put around them. And well, I remember you introduced me to Arby Williams's quilt with the white overalls, I believe, and like I want to say maybe yeah. rainbow stripes down the inseam or something. Right. Really spectacular quilt. I mean, they're right. obviously overalls, but they're also transformed right. at the same time. Exactly. So this idea of this class, and I, I feel like it's it's just an extension of the passage quilting, is this idea that we can go and connect with our little ones, whatever age that is, whether it was my 55-year-old little one that just happened a little while ago, or my 10-year-old little one. But it also is it, that we would take certain clothing it could be clothing we have, or it could be clothing that would be representative. Like, you don't have any of your clothes from when you were a teacher, but you might be able to go back and to the thrift store and find a piece of clothing that, like, oh, this is the kind of thing I wore all the time as a teacher, This right? is the vibe. Yeah, this is the vibe. Right. So you bring it in and you, you connect to it because you have that relationship to it. So you can find that clothing. Or it could be imaginary. It could be a future person or a superhero inside of you or where where you want to be or how you imagine yourself becoming it could be it could be about your cultural identity or gender identity i've i've often thought that i i mean a long time ago i wanted to do this with transgender community in terms of just the conversation around transgender experiences is just more out there now and and can be talked about more. And so we can tell those stories in our quilts too. So there's a lot of healing. I had one person do this in the last class and I remember her thinking about her feminine identity when she was a young woman wearing mini skirts and she did a bunch of stuff with mini skirts and how much it brought up to her about her experiences as a young woman, setting boundaries dealing with sexism, how it affected her and her role in it. And all this stuff came up from just working with these miniskirts, really intentionally representing a, a certain time, a certain little one of her life in her. So I think that's what the Trailblazers class is going to be about. We have all kinds of different transformations and transitions happening in our own lives and in our in our living relationships as well that we can explore with this process of quilting. We just got in a conversation on the Nook recently about a, a type of quilt that I had never even considered before. Now, you probably have, but I had never thought about a divorce quilt before. And oh, what yeah. That might divorce look like. quilts. Yeah. And, and not so much like... In this context, if I'm remembering correctly, it was they wanted to make a quilt for their two friends who were going through a separation. And then, like, what might that quilt look like? You know, and in my mind, it would be a modular quilt, right? It would be a quilt that could appear whole and unified, but then maybe had some central seam that could be separated into two separate quilts, something like that. Uh, There's just quilts are infinite containers, aren't they? Because they really do... All the, I'm not going to say all, almost all of the significant things that we experience in life, we experience in our clothes. That's right. And so anything that we want to explore or tap into is right there at our fingertips. That's right. Exactly. It's really true. And it's, like I said, it's that reality has been a little bit lost with people buying only brand new quilting materials off the bolt for their work. 
now more than ever, it's a great time to revisit those roots of practice where we're just using our everyday materials that we live in. I'll tell you, as an artist, every time I buy a new piece of clothing or bed linen, I write it off as a deduction. Maybe I shouldn't say that on a podcast. But I, mean, <laughs> I, I do the same thing. <laughs> I can make a quilt out of it, right? Totally. It's a material. Totally. It's, it's like I recently saw a t-shirt that said future ancestor. So maybe we should also think of every piece of clothing that we buy as future quilt. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I definitely think that. I, I feel... I feel like I have some solid uh, ground to defend that if I ever have to. <laughs> and I have made clothes out of, I mean, I have made quilts out of the clothes that I wear. For sure. Uh, so, And it's a hard choice sometimes. Like, I'm, I'm sure you've been there where, like, you're in the middle of a quilt and you're like, what I really need right now is this shade of blue. And I don't have it in my stash, but I have it in my closet. <laughs> so it's like, how much does this shirt mean to me as a shirt? Does it mean more to me as quilt fodder? Probably. I go the other way, too. I buy, like, I especially love to wear men's shirts. And I'll buy men's shirts just for the color and the texture. And then I'll be like, oh, this fits me so nice. It looks so good. I think I'm going to keep this instead of use it in a quilt. <laughs> but the nice thing is I can recycle them out. Like I can wear it for a while and cut it up and then I'll get some new ones in that I'll wear for a while. And yeah, no, I love that. I mean, isn't that great that we can really make so much beauty out of any old thing, old curtains, pillowcases, our jeans, our whatever, right? Well, it's like, it sounds like you and I are living our lives in a certain like artistic ecosystem, right? Where things are just flowing in and flowing out and nothing ever stays the same for too long. Everything has potential possibility for transformation. That's right. Sherry, this has been such a wonderful conversation about passage quilts. And I'm wondering if, as a way of kind of wrapping this up a little bit, I've heard you talk about your role as a facilitator in making these bereavement quilts with other people. And it's it doesn't sound like easy work, right? It, it is. There's a lot of heavy energy or there can be heavy energy at times like that. I find myself wondering how you take care of yourself as a facilitator in all of this. At a certain point, um, I know there were times when I needed to just move move out of that work for a while. I think there is there is some aspects of it that can be accumulative, that can be hard. I think, though, m mostly uh, is acknowledging, again, my role as a listener and then also connecting to my own grief and healing process in a way that, I mean, for a long time, it really helped me with my own grieving process to be present to others, because it's kind of like we all have suffering and we share it. We know we're not alone in that it can be restorative. And so having that and seeing it kind of as a, as a gift and an honor that somebody would share those experiences with you or be willing to be that honest about their grief. And then also, again, just grounding in the practice and the embodied practice and, and the joy and the consolation of the finished piece and the creative process itself. And along with that, I've always done therapy as well. So, you know, I think having 
you know, your own person or your own way to process these experiences in yourself is important to to be doing that too. Especially if you're going to be doing it on a professional level, I think it's a good practice. Sherry, if somebody were interested in learning more about bereavement quilts, passage quilts, and learning with you, do you have a workshop or any resources coming up that they can tap into? Well, definitely people should sign up for the Trailblazers class if they're online. If they really specifically want to do this, this is the time because I don't teach these all the time. They're very intense sessions. And so that's coming up March 2nd and 3rd. So my new series is Found Color, and there's a lot of great guests. All of them work with secondhand materials. Amanda. Amanda Natick. I can't wait. Yeah. We have Beverly Smith. And let's see, we've got Russell James Barrett. We've got some new people, Chris Cassio. Oh, and Sarah Nishiura. The last guest I wanted to definitely talk about was Sue So Shop. There's some incredible work being done out there for sure. Thank you for pulling all those folks together. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so that people can visit my website and go to my quilt classes page and find all of that. Yeah, well, and we'll put links in the show notes below as well. So Sherry, this has been so much fun talking to you. Yeah, thank you, Zach. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sherry Lynn Wood as much as I did. Now, before you go anywhere, don't forget to check out the show notes below for the link to enter the giveaway for a free year on the Quilty Nook. Until our paths cross again, I hope you're well, I hope you're sowing something good, and I hope to see you soon, maybe on the Nook. Who knows? <laughs>